So I, I, the passage we're dealing with deals with a lot of uh, sort of what, what we let go and what we continue in terms of cultural engagement. It was interesting when uh, Kavita was here one of the last times, our youngest daughter, I think she was still in high school at the time, and we were meeting up at a, a restaurant and uh, she had this long hair and, and I'm watching Kavita stroke my daughter's hair and then she held her hand. And, and in, I found out from Steve and Rebecca that in India, it's very common for females to hold each other's hands and for males to hold each other's hands and walk down the street. Steve said he had to get used to holding hands with another man and walking down the street. Because that, you, they didn't show, uh, you know, male-female affection publicly, but they showed female-female affection and male-male affection. And that was the way it is. I remember when I was in Africa and, and they, um, the... A friend of a, a guy that we were staying with and he had a, a friend who was a lawyer and he had just had his first baby and in that culture in Tanzania the wife would go to the moms for the first three months and the the husband and this guy named Paul, they'd been friends since probably childhood, and they like, oh, we just love it, we hang out, they share the same bed, they have pillow talk at night and uh, and I'm like, and they're talking about how great it was. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a difference in culture. I mean, when I have to share a, a bed with another man when I travel to Africa or to some of these other places, it's awkward having pillow talk. Let's just be honest. I mean, I signed up for a seminar in Holland, and they put me in the same room in these Euro beds. I mean, there were two beds put together. We had to share a blanket, and I had to go have pillow talk with a stranger, and he was the presenter. And I'm like... I didn't know I'd have to do this. I mean, it's all, if this is all about saving money, can I just pay a little bit more? <laughs> I mean, culture's tough. It, I mean, it, it really is. And I, I remember when I went to uh, school with a, a, a girl whose dad was the head of what they called the, the Pinkster Gemeinschap, which is the name of the Pentecostal church in Holland. It's sort of like the Assemblies of God in the Netherlands. And... and uh, I remember having a conversation in a group where when the American Pentecostals would come and get together with the Dutch Pentecostals, you know what they would do? The American Pentecostals would judge and look down on the Dutch Pentecostals because they would have wine or beer or drink alcohol. The Dutch Pentecostals would look down on the American Pentecostals for all their hair, makeup, and jewelry. It's a weird world that we live in, isn't it? Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage is, is dealing with the Corinthians in a specific area about what do they need to give up from their past and what can they continue to do and how do you make those decisions? Because this church in, in Corinth, as we know, we're in the 10th chapter, if you want to follow along, in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and it... It's amazing the arguments that he has to make to convince the Corinthians to sort of, hey, wake up, move forward, let go of this, practice this. And we're just going to start by uh, starting in chapter 10. And he says this, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And 
all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And, and I, I just want to stop there. And, and the, the Apostle Paul does a couple things. Some of you know that this was a largely Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience. But in him using this passage from the Old Testament, they had the, they had the Old Testament. They had the Torah. They were familiar with the teachings of the book of Exodus. And I'm praying about what to preach through next year. And we might even tackle Exodus next year, maybe in larger chunks. But, but Here's, here's the thing you need to know. He, he says, look, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the age has come. He, he is passionate about when we read the Bible, we start to understand that, you know what, I don't have to make every mistake in the world. I, I, I don't know if... Maybe you've been parents, and some children, you can say, hey, don't touch that. You will get burned. And other kids are like, really? Ah! And you're like, and, and if you're like me, because we, we raised five wonderful children, um, some of them have to learn by example, you know, and others, you can just say, hey, stay out of that cupboard, and they do it. The Apostle Paul wants us to be the kind of people that can learn by others' failures. He's trying to protect us from being, should, did you ever call your kids stupid? No, you never did that. But he's trying, to, he's trying to protect us and saying, learn from these. And he goes on, he says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be an idolater as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened, as I put up there, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for us, for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands firm take heed, lest he fall. I find it interesting, and we, were, we talked about this passage in our small group, that the Apostle Paul puts these together. He puts together the, the passage on sexual immorality. This is the golden calf thing. Moses was up on the mountain, and God's like, do you see my people? And they made a golden calf, and they were worshiping it, and they were uh, fooling around all around the golden calf. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy, and God judged those people. And they were complaining about not getting food. And he judged them. 
And the one that gets me is grumbling. You know, we can understand God says, don't put me to the test. We can understand that we don't want to be people that, you know, make a golden calf and have a party around it. But when it comes to us in the church, we give ourselves a pass at grumbling. Right? Don't we? I mean, I had a guy, the light just turned, and he was beeping at me. And I'm like, and then, and then he wouldn't come next to me because he was like, a, people, when they do that, they're like afraid of you. You know, are you, are you a carrying person or something like that? You know, and so this guy just stayed way back. And I'm like, dude, the, the light just changed. Um, we, we give ourselves a pass to grumble, to moan to complain. Is it quiet in here on purpose? I think I give myself a pass to grumble, to complain. It was interesting. There was a guy in our small group and he talked about the difference and I thought it was a really good point. Between David complaining to God And these people are complaining to each other and to their leaders. You see, there's a difference between you taking your concerns, your disappointments, your hurt to God because God is big enough to handle those. His shoulders are big enough to carry that weight. But if I'm just going and whining to somebody else, what does that do to our community? Oh, well, I see that too. Oh, you're... You should be unhappy in your marriage. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'd take that to the boss. Oh, I can't believe it. He didn't look at you when you walked by. You you know, here's the thing. When it comes to fault finding, we can always find them. Did you know that? We can always find fault. You can find it in your spouse. You can find it at your work. You can find it your church. You find it when you drive. And you know where you you can find it too? Right here. Right? You can find it in yourself. And the Lord wants us to teach us that it's okay to take your complaints to Him. But We need to guard our hearts when it comes to this grumbling and complaining. I mean, and I'll just make one commentary on our our internet culture. What do they call those people after a news article or a post that they just go after people? What do they call them again? What is it? They, They cancel them, but they also, there's another name where people are just, they're just nasty to people. Trolls, yeah, it's like, it's like some people, they just get so much joy out of saying nasty things about news articles, social media posts. It's like they're professional grumblers. Do you ever remember that passage in Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is worthy of praise? Think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you're centering on garbage, you're going to act like garbage, okay? 
you're going to be focused on garbage. The world is going to look like trash to you. But if you center on God and his beauty and his goodness, and you take your frustrations to him in prayer, he begins to turn those things around. And that's why the Bible says he makes beauty for ashes. He takes the dust and he makes something beautiful of it. So the Corinthians were screwing up here. And I, I, I'll, I'll give you a little context. Well, we'll, we'll read on, He's, and then I'll give you the context. Um, so he says this. He says, he says, now these things happened as examples that you don't desire evil. And, and then he says, therefore, anyone who thinks they stand firm, watch out lest they fall. And no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here's the thing. What was happening in Corinth is they were going to the temple, the Christians were, and they were being part of these pagan sacrifices. And sometimes during those sacrifices, there was immorality that took place. You know, they, 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 it's debatable with scholars, but there's evidence that they still had some form of temple prostitution, and so they would be involved with worship. That's why the, the statement earlier about sexual immorality. And, and the Apostle Paul is, is beginning to say to them, wait, look at the examples in the Old Testament. Look, the way, look at the way their, their lives live. And you think you can still participate in this thing that was a part of your culture. I mean, if you were a new, a new believer, this was something you grew up with. And they would take meat and they would sacrifice it to these idols at these pagan temples. And he's says to them, look, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Yes, you're, you're being tempted. You're being tested. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And the word temptation can also be translated testing. And we know that everybody who is human gets tempted and tested. Is that correct? I mean, I was thinking about the Apostle Paul's life. I mean, the Apostle Paul lived this life where he got called to preach the gospel, but then he would get punished for it by the people that didn't like him. I mean, he even get, you know, talked about being stoned, you know, left for dead. Sometimes they had to lower him out over a wall so he could escape. And, and, and when he talks about testing or temptation, he's talking about it from real life. I mean, sometimes he had to endure it and be put in prison. And other times he got to flee and get out of Dodge. And he experienced God's providence, God's provision, his presence, and his help in every one of those situations. And sometimes, you know, as, as a follower of Jesus, you need to figure out, God, are you calling me to endure this with grace? Or are you calling me to flee? Are you calling me to run, 
away and get out. The years ago when we were uh, working in the Netherlands and I met a, I met a guy, we, we'll just call him Ron, and, and Ron did the books for our church. And so we had, a, we had a house that we rented the upper room. It was, they called them Zolderkammers. It was an attic office. And down below, we had other professionals, but they rented us the attic. And we had a, a room. We had some couches in, some desks. I had a tiny little slanted room. And then there was a, another couple offices all up in the top of this bigger house. And one day, I was, I was in the office, and it was just me and this guy, Ron. And Ron would do the books for the church. Ron was British. He was, um, how do you say? He was one of those guys that looked like an accountant. He had glasses. He was balding. He, he just was quiet and would go about his business. He looked like he had been, you know, uh, an A student his whole life and was just one of those guys that always followed the rules. Are you like me? You like, you like look at somebody and you make these judgments? Do you ever do that? Well, that day, Ron and I got talking. And Ron says, yeah, I moved to the city, and it was, it was over 10 years ago. He says, and I, um, yeah, I was a heavy drug user. And I, I moved into a, a they, they called them like a squat, where you would squat in this house. And um, he said that if you, if you tried to improve yourself, like you wanted to get a job or you wanted to get better, he goes, they would kick you out. Like you, you couldn't better yourself and live in this squat. And there was a whole community of people. And he said, you know, I was, I was um, he had a, not just a drug addiction, he had a, a sex addiction. And he talked about the, seeing the, women that were in the red light district. And so my mind is just going because this guy looks like he never did any wrong his whole life and all of a sudden he's telling me he was this crazy drug user, had these addictions, and lived in a place that if he tried to better himself they'd literally kick you out of the place you were staying. I'm like, wow. And then then he tells me, he says, he said, I was visiting a, um, a prostitute one day who had a, a picture of Jesus on the wall. And he says, I didn't know anything or very little about Jesus. He said, but something inside me cried out to Jesus and asked to be saved. And he said, from that day, my life started to change. He got kicked out of his house. He ended up going to school. He ended up looking like he's this in- incredible person who lived this wonderful life and, and didn't do all these things. And I, and I remember um, he got married. He was, he, was, he, he was just this really, really nice guy. And I was so blown away about how Jesus saved him from a picture You know, the Bible says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. I mean, just crying out to Jesus changes everything. And a little later on, we had another conversation again. And and he said, you know, 
I haven't had any temptation for years. He said, but I'm starting to feel tempted again. He says, we're moving. I think they immigrated to Canada, I think. And, uh, and, and I always thought of that, that there is a, sometimes there's the grace to endure, but sometimes you got to get out of Dodge. And part of wisdom is knowing when it's time to flee and when it's time to endure because God will be with you in both. And the Apostle Paul knew that. I mean, sometimes lower me over a wall. Get me out of here. I'm not afraid to die. He obviously was not afraid to die. And sometimes it's, okay, lock me up. You know, we're going to bear underneath this. God's going to be with me. I always remember Ron and uh, his story, his salvation story, his wisdom. You know, this years passed between these two conversations. So when, when he said, it's time to move on. And therefore, sometimes, that's why the Bible says, sometimes the best thing to do is run away. Therefore, my friends, in verse 14, flee from idols. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but all of us, now back then, they literally had idols. They would sacrifice meat to, and then they would take it and sell it in the market. And so, idolatry was, was, was very uh, obvious. But nowadays, for Christ's followers, idolatry is hidden. And here's what I mean. I, I, I quoted this in our small group that, that John Calvin, the religious reformer around the same time, a little bit younger than Martin Luther, uh, talked about, he said, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. I mean, there are some people that they have to play the lottery. Why? Why do they have to play the lottery? Because they might win, right? And if they win, they picture a better life, a greater happiness. Why? Because money, in their mind, is going to bring happiness. Now, the Bible tells me that in his presence is the fullness of church. Do you know what? But the front knows it better than the back. Can the back say joy? That's better. Okay. In his presence is the fullness of joy. So, if I know the scriptures, if I get million or millions of dollars, if that doesn't bring me to the presence of Jesus, then my joy won't be there. Others are like, you know, if I just had the perfect job, I would be happy. Or if I, if I just find the perfect person, right? And I, I like Tim Keller's past now, great man. I liked what he said. He goes, when you think you found the perfect person, wait a month and you won't. I mean, th th that's a contradiction of terms, isn't it? There's only one perfect person and he stayed single his whole life and they still killed him. 
And that's Jesus. But we, we do this. Our hearts long for something else besides God. I got up this morning and I had this just lovely, quiet, there's something about sitting on a patio and enjoying the morning. And, and it's, it's like, it's, it's like that, that you sort of, even in the morning, you like decompress a little bit and you tune in and you start to listen. Because life to me feels like a, a lot like a balloon. That, yeah, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you try to blow up a balloon until it pops. And sometimes you just close your eyes because you think it's going to whack you in the face. And, and, you're, and you feel like my balloon is getting more full and more full and more full and more full till you're almost going to pop. But when you come to Jesus in those quiet moments, it's like he begins to let the air out. And your balloon gets a little more manageable because you've taken your idols and your pressures and your stresses and you've reprioritized and you've said, okay, Lord, you're in control and I'm not. And in fact, the only thing that we can change is ourselves and even that we struggle with. Isn't that true? And when we come before the Lord and we let him decompress us and we let him sort of search our hearts and we realize that we've been trusting in other things, thinking happiness is going to be if I have the perfect this, we learn then to flee from idols, to turn away from them. And I think in America, we have a hard time even identifying them. But the way I identify them in my life is I, I'm asking myself, what am I looking for that I think is going to make me happy, more fulfilled? And then when I hold on to that and I put God here, I realize that, uh-oh, I now have an idol. got to come underneath the Lord. There's nothing wrong with desiring a spouse. There's nothing wrong with desiring a good job. But they all have to be in perspective to who God is in our life. And I want to jump to the end here, um, and then I'll give you a, a little word on communion in a second. So let me just read a little bit more you want to read along with me. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything 
or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. Do you get it? He doesn't want them to go to the temple because what that idolatry is also linked to the world of the demonic, okay? And he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot partake in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So, we provoke, shall we provoke the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so he goes on and he's saying, when it comes to changing the culture, when it comes to making these cultural decisions, going to the temple for these new believers and sacrificing meat is off limits. You don't continue in that practice. All things are lawful, he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be, but these things but not all things build up. That no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, go and eat whatever he sets before you without raising a question on good conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of the conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty, my freedom, be deemed by someone else's conscience or determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because that is what I give thanks for. Now pause here for a second it's obvious that the Apostle Paul would have dinner with unbelievers. And some of that food that was set before him had been sacrificed to idols, and Paul's like, I don't give a rip. It's good roast beef, okay? But he's saying, on, for the sake of other people's conscience, if I find out ahead of time that it's been sacrificed, I don't eat it because I don't want to offend somebody else's conscience. But he has the complete freedom to do it because he says it doesn't mean anything. He wasn't involved in the sacrifice. It's just meat they put on the table. And then he goes on to give a little bit more clarification. He says, so whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And, and I, I, I love how he sums this up. When it comes to making decisions about the gray areas of life, he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Can you do that activity? Can you participate in that practice to the glory of God? That means when you're at work, you're going to work to the glory of God. That means when you're driving, you know you have different rules for driving than your Christian life. I know you do. You drive to the glory of God. 
You see, there, there, there is this sense that there's gray areas in our life, and in those gray areas, one of the best indicators is if, if you're walking in that grace is to do it to the very glory of God. And I guess I'd ask you, what in your life that doesn't fit with that glory right now? Is it a practice that you do? Is it secret? Is it something that's hidden? Is it a sort of a, a two-part two person that part of you is here and like, nah, this isn't to the glory, but this is, this is just my secret? Or is all your life lived to the glory of God? And you know the Apostle Paul's passion is that what we do doesn't hinder the gospel's advancement. He said, why do you live to the glory of God? Because we don't want to put a stumbling block before a Jew, before a Greek, before the church. We want people to be able to come to Jesus and hear the gospel and have our lives not screw it up. So whatever you do, particularly in the gray areas, do it to the very glory of God. Do it for his honor. Did you know the word glory in Hebrew, kavod, it means weightiness? Did you know that? So we used to say to people that would, you know, over summer break, they'd put on a few pounds. We'd talk about their glory growing. And because um, they're kavod, they got more weighty. Um, that's like a seminary joke. I'm sorry. That's a, it's like his glory got bigger. Um, we do it to the glory of God. And, and, and as we wrap this up, I, I, I really pray that the Lord would be ministering. I, I, one of the, the guys that started the mission that I work with, I didn't realize it was going to print so big, but he, I, I printed out his newsletter. And I, and I thought, I was thinking of people who have spent their life to the glory of God. They've given their lives I mean, Linus, his name is Linus Morris. Linus is a guy that, that trained to be an engineer, and God saved him, I think, when he was in college. And he gave his life to ministry. And he talks about a high school friend that he met in his recent newsletter. Linus is 80 years old and still going strong for the gospel. I mean, that's the amazing thing still traveling, doing ministry, bringing people to Christ, discipling. And he says, I met this guy, and he said, both our sons, he goes, we go back to high school, and we just re reconnected, and both our sons are in the ministry. And he was able to attend this guy's son's church. And he goes, and then there was an, uh, another guy that he connected with recently. He called him our Dutch son, because when we moved to Holland, Linus was in Holland. He lived in the same neighborhood as us. He raised six kids. They went and planted a church, and, and then they came back to the States, and then they moved later on to the Netherlands. And he said, he said all the, the guys in this, they call him their, their Dutch son, he says they're loving Jesus, and he's an elder in his church, and he's passionate about Scripture. And then he, he has a Bible study that I think he used to do face-to-face, uh, -face, and now they do it online, and he literally calls it No BS BS. It's the No BS Bible Study. No BS BS. He, Linus has a good sense of humor, too. And they Zoom with people all over there, and he says, there's two doctors in this uh, Bible study. He said, I met this other doctor, and he said, I wanted him to meet, and, and how this guy is just uh, passionate, again, through Linus's influence, uh, continuing this, the the work of the ministry, and he shows a, a picture of this 
baby church that they planted when they went to Geneva. It's actually in a town called Ferney Voltaire, right across the border in France from Geneva. And, and uh, he shows a, a picture of the, the church when they planted it. And he has it there. And then he says, and now it looks like this. And, 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 it, and it was just this, this sense of how, how God has used him to touch people throughout his life. And he does it for the glory of God. And friends, I, I, I just want you to know that that is what God has called each and every one of us to. To not live for our glory, but to live for a greater glory. And it's the glory of God. And the things in our lives that don't fit into that, we let them fall away. We flee, we endure, we turn, and we say yes over and over and over again. Let's take the Lord's Supper and then we'll give you a blessing. So Lord, we, we are just your people.